Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Fossil fuels are sometimes described as the lifeblood of our economy. They power cars, trucks, ships, heavy industry. You know what they do. They're everywhere. And that's why carbon emissions continue to rise despite all the policies and technologies to rein them in. I'm talking about things like LED light bulbs, efficiency measures, etc. But there is some good news. Dave Sawyer, the principal economist at the Canadian Climate Institute, and one of my guests this week, told me we're reaching an inflection point in the economy. He contributed to a recent study that found that, yes, carbon emissions rose in 2021, which is the most recent data we have. But the good news is that carbon intensity in Canada, a ratio of our emissions to our GDP activity, declined. And that means our economy is decoupling from carbon emissions, Sawyer told me. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. My second guest, Michael Bernstein, the executive director of Clean Prosperity and an economist by training, went a little deeper on what lies ahead. He looked at the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which has so much money in it to accelerate the energy transition in that country, and tried to see what this means for Canada, how Canada can compete. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Dave. Thanks so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. The headline from a report you released this week is that Canada is decoupling its economic growth from its carbon emissions. That's a big deal. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so it basically means that the emissions are falling at a faster rate than the economy is growing. Basically, when we think about the drivers of emissions in the country, we have more economic activity and more population that typically raises emissions. And that's offset by policy and market drivers that decarbonize. So, so what are those? You know, the, the carbon price or EV, electric vehicle cars are coming into the market and reducing the emissions coming from vehicles. And then we also think about energy efficiency. So we're basically using less energy per unit of output. And so the decarbonization policy and market drivers and the energy efficiency tend to offset the economic growth. And what we're basically seeing is those are working really hard and reducing the expansion of emissions as the economy grows. Right. When I look at charts, basically, emissions are a pretty good proxy for whether or not our economy is growing or not, right? Like in 2020, it was like the only year they dropped. And that happened to be that year when the pandemic just brought the economy to a standstill. But now that they're decoupling, that looking at your emissions is not the best way to measure economic growth. What does it mean, like in a metaphorical level, like are oil and gas and fossil fuels losing some of their currency, would you say? I want to deal first with COVID. So COVID, we had sort of a 9% drop in emissions. In Canada, yeah. And the economy was down uh, 5%. And so when we look at that result, we think on the surface level, oh, it was a reduction in the size of the economy. But when we you know, get our sharp pencils out and ask why did those emission reductions occur, 
we actually saw a lot of policy and energy efficiency also contributing to the emission reductions. So the, the COVID drop in emissions that we saw, which is rather large, was actually the result of policy and market drivers as well. And then so what's happened now is the economy's bounced back. Oil and gas emissions are climbing as output climbs, and, no, and, and, and emissions rose overall, and, and sort of that more economic activity offset the reduction of you know, the, the policy and the market drivers. Okay, we'll come back to my point about what decoupling means, but let me just dig into something that you were saying there for a second. Which policies are taking a bite out of emissions? Because I, I, I guess I don't actually know the answer to that. Well, we just did an inventory of federal, provincial, and territorial climate policies, and we identified over 400 policies that are actively working in the country right now. So your listeners will think about the carbon tax because that's the sort of headline policy that's in the press all the time. But that's just one policy. We have really stringent vehicle efficiency standards that are requiring each new vehicle in each model year to come down in emission intensity meaning per unit of fuel, they have to be more efficient. That's falling at a rate of about 4.5% annually. So there's all kinds of policies that are at play. And it's actually really hard to tease out the impact of one single policy because there are so many policies squeezing GHGs in the country. Uh, It's really hard to disentangle what's driving what. So then we take a macro view and we stand back and say, okay, what is the overall contribution of these policies? Right. And maybe this is a good time to ask, but in the report, you said, Canada released 691 megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2021. Yeah. A 2.8% increase in absolute emissions from 2020. But these are estimates, right? How are you coming up with these numbers? So the 2020 numbers are the real numbers coming out of Environment and Climate Change Canada. And then for us to put out a preliminary estimate in advance of the official inventory, the national inventory report, we go to Statistics Canada and we look at basically energy data, data that's on, on fuel sales, on production of cement, all kinds of data sets that allow us to track the activity, you know, the expansion in the economy, uh, which then allows us to attach emission coefficients. We're, we're able to use historical relationships between production and emissions, and then we can calculate the 2020 number. So it's really data intensive. I mean, I should say I have spoken to people who said, like, we don't really know what our confidence level is in these estimates, but I guess they're the best we have at this point. Yeah. It's a huge topic to get your arms around, but you guys did the hard work of looking at all the macro policies. Yeah, emissions are on track to be coming down. That's right. I mean, we we see probably for the first time ever emissions to be below 700 megatons. So the size of Canada's economies was roughly equivalent in 2019 and 2021. So setting aside COVID. So the total economy, it was about 1.99 trillion in, in real terms. And emissions were 5% lower in 2021 than they were in 2019. So we can basically say, well, yeah, something's going on here to reduce emissions. Okay. But it's hard to point to exactly what. I mean, when you look at like the huge sources of emissions in our economy, like the really big ones, like oil and gas, some of the really big ones, though, are going up. I guess one of the questions I'm asking you is, have we gotten all the low-hanging fruit and now do we have to attack big sources? So, in the way I think about this is fossil fuels are absolutely dripping in every corner of our lives and our economy. So, you know, those 400 policies I mentioned are really designed to, to sort of go after 
everything, as it were. And some of those policies are, you know, going after low hanging fruit. So you think about the electricity sector. So it's fairly easy to get off coal and, you know, go to natural gas and then to go to renewables. Renewable generation is cost effective now. Electric vehicles suddenly are cheap, cheap, cheap. And we're all going to have electric vehicles probably in the next four or five years. We didn't see that coming a decade ago. There's lots going on. And then there's the intransient, the harder emissions to go at, which are, you know, like oil sands emissions. We do have the technology to do it. The question is, can we implement that technology at a pace that'll get us to our targets? You know, the carbon capture and utilization storage projects are big projects. We're going after the low-hanging fruit, but some of these big technologies, yeah, we need to get going on fast. Right. Because, I mean... We've said we're going to be net zero by 2050, but interim target is 2030, right? Mm. That, I think we're cutting from around 700 megatons per year today down to 440. Yeah. So just a massive, we've never seen a drop like that. It would require record drops over the next eight years. Yeah. So we would have to go from 2% reduction in the emission intensity of the economy. So that's emissions per unit of GDP. We'd have to triple that from 2% to 6% to, to hit those targets. And then to go to net zero by 2050, all in the lifespan of one industrial facility, right? We're talking 35, 36 years to 2050. And when you think about that, that's the life of two or three cars, so when you think about capital stock turnover and that time frame, yeah, we've got to be touching capital replacement on a regular basis with these policies and always choosing the lowest emitting option as we up- update that capital. But yeah, the time, the time is tight. If we could fast forward ahead to say 2030, if there are reductions, is it going to be a straight line, a gradual line? Is it going to be choppy? Well, so passenger transportation, which you know is a really big chunk of our national inventory, I think we'll see significant reductions in the short term as EVs really come on hot and heavy. Another area is electricity sector emissions. So there's still a bunch of emissions sitting in Alberta and Saskatchewan and the Atlantic region. Those are going to be coming down really fast. There's a new federal clean electricity regulation. Those are the coal. Yeah, the coal plants, but also oil and natural gas they have to be net zero by 2035. And we've seen really a massive transformation in that sector anytime policy has been applied there. We see that happening. And then buildings are going to be difficult. You know, the buildings we live in are hard to deal with. We have to switch our furnaces from natural gas in a lot of places. So that's a challenge. Heavy industry can be a challenge. But when you look at Ontario and the steel plants in Hamilton, the feds just jumped in with, with the province, put in $800 million, and they're changing their production process and going from you know heavy emitting coking approaches to something that is, you know, a fraction of the emissions. There is transformative tech out there. It's just a question of finance and policy signals and targeting. So your prediction is we'll see a big drop. If you look at one line, you'll be like, that's EVs. Then you'll see another one. You'll be like, okay, we just got rid of the coal in the Atlantic, in Alberta, in Saskatchewan. Then we'll see one maybe that, oh, here's some industry, like the steel companies, which are moving to electric arc furnaces that you mentioned. Those are the big ones. You think we can do it by 2030? Yeah. And then the question with oil and gas. So whether or not oil and gas starts implementing really, you know, really sort of lumpy emission reduction. So when we think about oil and gas, we always think that they're, oh, poor oil and gas, they're, you know, they're not going to be able to reduce emissions. It's going to be hard for them. Once a few facilities move on carbon capture, utilization, and storage, it's like a 90% reduction in their emissions. 
those credits are saleable. They basically generate cash flow that can then be sold to other facilities. So there can be a bunch of winners. So once these larger projects start going and the finance is there, we could see a really rapid transformation in short order. But the holdup is really, can they roll the tech out at a pace that hits 2030? We call them wildcards at the Institute. It's like, we don't quite know when they're going to happen, but they look really promising. And you know we have to sort of keep our, keep our eye on them. And what's the biggest wild card? Is it oil and gas? Yeah, oil and gas and carbon capture utilization storage, right? There, oil and gas is about 27% of our national emissions. Oil sands takes up a big chunk of that. And getting oil sands moving is a challenge. But at the same time, we can't think of all emissions from oil and gas as being just oil sands. So conventional oil and gas methane reductions are a big opportunity there. And we see actually massive reductions happening really fast there. And that's potential as well as upstream natural gas processing. So all oil and gas is not a problem. Some of it is oil sands, but conventional, you know, the wells, the drilled wells, you know, flaring methane, you're not allowed to flare methane anymore results in big emission reductions. So yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag and we could see some really quick movement in the sector. Cool. So bottom line takeaways from the report are economic growth is starting to decouple from emissions. And that means we're finally making some progress. Yeah, that's right. The combination of policy that's starting to bite and is going to get more stringent in time, meaning it's sort of accelerating and becoming stronger. And then the market is delivering globally and domestically all these cool technologies that are reducing emissions. And the combined fact, the market drivers, the policy drivers are a big deal. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for your time. That was Dave Sawyer, Principal Economist at the Canadian Climate Institute. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now my next guest, Michael Bernstein, Executive Director of Clean Prosperity, who contributed to a report that tries to quantify how Canada can compete with the U.S. for low-carbon investment. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show with me today. Great to be with you. Awesome to have you. And we're going to talk about the future of Canada, whether we're going to be able to achieve these really ambitious net zero emission targets. You know, we have 30 years to do it, but the investments to decarbonize all the various industries and sources of pollution have really barely begun. And you released this report this week, which said right now, everyone's talking about the US and its Inflation Reduction Act, how it casually sort of lobs just billions of dollars at so many different parts of the energy transition, hydrogen, electric vehicles, you name it. Your report asks, how do Canada's own policies measure up to that? What'd you find? Well, we found that Canada has a huge opportunity ahead of it, but only if we take a lot of action and very quickly. And I guess the other way to say that is right now we are actually quite far behind, probably not surprisingly, because the U.S. has just taken a step that is kind of unprecedented in history, where they basically said, we are going to give everybody money and probably more money than they even expected. So that has really been a game changer for decarbonization and any investor who was thinking about where should they put their next 
hydrogen plant or their next carbon capture facility or their next battery manufacturing plant, you name it. All of them are now thinking about the United States. And we've seen a flurry of announcements of companies who say they are now going to be setting up in the U.S. And so Canada has now gone from being in a leading position to, I'd say, trailing the U.S. But there's a lot of things we can do to catch up. And and that's what we focus our report on. Yeah. So I just want to pause for a second, too. I want to go into the details of your report, but I want to ask like a basic sort of question, which is, I thought in Canada, we have a carbon tax. And the whole point of that was so that the government or taxpayers, however you want to say it, wouldn't need to subsidize decarbonization for the most profitable industries, that there would be market incentives for them to do that without sort of subsidization like the U.S. is doing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And the reality is we can use carbon pricing as a key tool to get companies to invest in low carbon technology and to reduce their emissions. But we have to demodify the carbon pricing policy in order to make it work effectively now that we see what the U.S. is doing. So if you are an oil sands facility, but it would apply, as you say, to cement and steel and chemicals, et cetera. But let's take an oil sands facility as an example. If they are going to reduce their emissions today, there are two incentives that carbon pricing actually has for them to do that. One is what everybody knows about, which is that you know today they have to pay a carbon price on the emissions that come out of that oil field. But the second incentive that's in pricing that not everybody is aware of is that if they go ahead and reduce them, they actually get what's called credits. You can think of them kind of like vouchers that they can then sell to other companies so that those companies can avoid paying the carbon price. And it's kind of a 20%, 80% split, meaning if I take out a million tons of carbon from my operations... You know, 20% of that, 200,000 tons, that's me now not having to pay a carbon price. But the other 80%, 800,000 tons of those emissions that I just got rid of, I get credits for those. And I can go out and sell them in the marketplace. That's, there's reasons we do that. But the problem with that, even though it in theory works great, is that if I'm a company and I'm going to invest a billion dollars, let's say, in a carbon capture technology for my refinery. I want to be pretty sure that I'm going to get meaningful money back for those credits. And I don't know today how much money I actually am going to get for those credits, because that depends on a whole bunch of dynamics around how many buyers and, and sellers, et cetera, that are in the market in the future. So what we are essentially saying is, look, the government does have a good policy in carbon pricing. It can work to incentivize emissions, whether that be in the oil and gas sector or elsewhere. But what they have to do is give companies more more certainty today that they're going to be able to sell those credits for a good price. And that's what's effectively known as contracts for difference. And we can talk about that more later if you'd like. Yeah. Okay. Basically, it's a way to establish some certainty about what the price of carbon is going to be, that it's not going to change if a new government changes or that that gives them certainty, right? That's exactly what it does. That's right. It's a form of insurance. It is interesting to me that in some ways, Canada has less certainty than the US, which there's wrapping up an inquiry into whether, you know, the January 6th, the sort of swings in the government recently have been really wild. But nonetheless, you're saying that there's at the moment more investor certainty 
in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way I describe it is what we have today is Canada offering industry a coach ticket on the plane with a chance for an upgrade later, maybe. And you have the U.S. sending everybody to first class right away. I see. And it's not a difficult decision, right? If you're thinking about investing in a hydrogen facility, you know today the U.S. is going to pay you $3 U.S. for every kilogram of hydrogen you produce. Full stop. You're going to get that money. In Canada, there's a whole bunch of things that might incentivize you, but you don't know exactly how it's going to work. You don't know how much money you're going to get from it. And so are you going to take the sure thing or are you going to take the maybe, maybe not kind of option? Right. Canada, which has the carbon tax, basically has a stick. And the U.S. has these production tax credits, which are basically they're subsidizing your operating costs. And so if you produce, to use your example, if it's we're going to give you $3 per kilogram of hydrogen, sky's the limit. Produce as much hydrogen as you want. You can get as much money from the government as you want. But, it, but it's a reward, whereas Canada has a stick. I mean, is that a fair way to think about it? I think it is. I think the the only nuance I'll give you there is that the way our carbon pricing system is set up is that there is some stick, as I was saying before, but there also is a carrot there. There's these credits that you get and, and you get money from them. You just don't know what another industrial facility might pay you for them. So there is a carrot. You just don't know what the size is. Right. Canada is not the U.S., it's the U.S. is a bigger economy. It's a bigger country. I mean, no one's the U.S. except the U.S. We have to think carefully. And you say this in your report about how and where we can compete. We kind of have to pick our spots. Just thinking about the big picture, I wonder, too, if they're not just some synergistic benefits, like if the U.S. gets a huge hydrogen economy going and all of a sudden there's actual demand for hydrogen, then if you're in Canada Maybe the profits aren't as great as in the U.S., but there's still profits and someone will invest here, right? Like there, there's a lot of capital in the world. Yeah, and that is the good news for sure, is that there is such a huge prize available in the low carbon economy. I mean, we're talking about the greatest economic opportunity of this century, that there can be many winners. The U.S. can win and Canada can win too. But the, I think the worry is that if we don't step up and have additional policy that's going to attract investors, that we are going to be left behind. And the same story that you just told, which I agree with, which is that we may be able to surf the wave in a, in a way of the incoming investment to the U.S. also presents some risk because, you know, just to use that example, hydrogen is expensive to ship. So if you start to develop uh, kind of clusters of hydrogen producers in specific locations in the U.S., it may be even less appealing in the future for those investors or others to set up in Canada. Yeah. What's at stake? Like, uh, you can always raise subsidies down the line, but you're saying there is a sort of first starter advantage. Yeah, I think that in a number of these technologies, whether it's hydrogen, certainly this could be true in the electric vehicle supply chain or in direct air capture. And there's other examples as well. There tend to be first mover advantages where, and this isn't true for every technology, but in many it will be where you start to get lock-in on how the supply chains are structured and you get economies of scale. In other words, you get advantages from you know, the second and third company or fourth company setting up where the previous companies already are. And that's the risk for Canada. And really, even if you're not 
focused on climate or greenhouse gas emissions simply as an economic strategy, we ought to be thinking about where we are going to generate the greatest economic returns in the future. And certainly this low carbon economy is a place we ought to be playing. Sure. And so let me ask you, where do you think Canada's best opportunities are? Yeah, so we identify in the report three specific areas. And but let me just tell folks how we got there, which okay. is we asked ourselves really two key questions, right? One is, where can Canada compete effectively in this global clean tech economy? And the second is, where are places where we actually can afford to try to match or maybe even outcompete the U.S.? Huh. So when you combine those two things together, um, what we came to is we thought that Canada should really be doubling down in direct air capture technology, which is a up and coming and set to be a, a massive new global industry where we're going to essentially need to reverse the process of climate change, pulling carbon from the air and burying it back underground. By the way, that but, sounds awesome. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like, hey, let's reverse climate change. Maybe you can explain just briefly, like, why that would be an economic engine for the country. Yeah, well, th there's going to be two major sources of revenue here. One is that companies and governments, frankly, anybody who's who's emitting today is going to, need to pay for this service of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So there's going to be money coming in that way. And there's going to be also a lot of money, I believe, coming in from governments around the world going forward because we have to pull out the greenhouse gases we've already put in the atmosphere. We've already put too much put too much there. So we're going to have to reverse that process. So that's where you get the money. And of course, that leads to jobs and, and other GDP benefits. So that's, that's one area that we point to. We also talk about uh, battery active materials. So that means, think of that as the components of making a battery. Um, interestingly, not the battery manufacturing itself. That's what everybody actually thinks about when they first think about batteries. But there's all of these steps that have to happen before you actually assemble the battery together, making the cathode, the anode, the separator, et cetera. And we think there are areas there upstream, so prior to getting to the battery assembly part, where Canada is really well positioned to compete. And part of that is about the mineral deposits that we have here, nickel and other minerals that, that really present a natural advantage. And the third area is sustainable aviation fuel. So this is using biomass to create fuels that will replace essentially fossil fuel-based, what is effectively kerosene that currently powers all of our airplanes, our helicopters, et cetera, today. And to be clear, are you, do you think those are areas where we should subsidize operating costs for companies doing this? Yes. What we recommend is that Canada first fixes its carbon pricing system through these contracts for difference that we talked about. And what that's going to do is it's going to provide benefits to all of these different technologies and technologies we probably haven't even thought of already. It's going to close that incentive gap to some extent. And then as a second step to answer your question specifically, we are recommending that Canada subsidize the operating costs for in these different areas that identified but not necessarily with the exact same dollar figure as the U.S., because we have other programs like carbon pricing that help us. But we've got to be able to close the gap so that you no know, companies today think, look, if I'm investing in Canada versus the U.S., at least I'm, I'm made whole 
by investing in Canada. I'm not leaving money on the table by choosing Canada. Well, let me ask you this. What's your estimate for what emissions look like over the next decade, given everything you know? That's a, that's a big question and a great question. I think that by 2035, you know, we are going to be at 40, maybe even 50% reduction. But I think a lot of that reduction is going to happen in the back half of that 10 or 12 year period. So I, I suspect by 2030, we're going to really struggle to hit that 40% target that the federal government has set because it simply takes the better part of a decade to build the kind of large-scale energy infrastructure that we need to decarbonize our economy. So I'm bullish about the long term, even including 2035 and certainly 2050. But 2030, I think, is going to be a, a tough go. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was Michael Bernstein, Executive Director of Clean Prosperity. And before that, Dave Sawyer, Principal Economist for the Canadian Climate Institute. Thanks to my guests and to my listeners. The original music on this show was composed and performed by Bryce Hall, who also designed the logo and executive produced this episode. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with another episode of Down to Business next week. But until then, you can find your business news for Canada at financialpost.com.